Section four of Mrs. Piozzi's Thraniana by Charles Hughes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The following entry in Thraliana after their return home is made on April the twenty ninth, seventeen eighty seven, and will explain Mrs. Piozzi's feelings. Quote, Vienna pleased Mr. Piozzi better than me. He found some musical houses very much to his taste but I disliked both the city and people exceedingly. Prague was horrible. Dresden won my heart. Was I sixty years old, I should like to settle at Dresden. The Bloomsbury Square and Southampton Row are somewhat nearer, to be sure. The manners very similar. The society just such, I think more women than men and the men poor creatures i made some friends female ones there who appeared to love me sincerely brunswick hanover and osnaburg form a climax of misery god keep one from ever seeing those places again berlin and potsdam were superbly dull the gallery at Dusseldorf is worth running across to look at, but Aix-la-Chapelle was a wretched place, and the spa baths made one sick to look at them. Brussels. Ay, Brussels was something like indeed. Never were people so caressed as Mr. Piozzi and I were at Brussels. The Duke and Duchess of Arenberg quite adored us. Lord and Lady Torrington professed themselves jealous of our fondness for them. The Princess Governante invited our further residence in her city, and asked me if nothing she could do would induce us to stay. The Archduchess has learned English out of my book, Johnson's Anecdotes, and Prince Albert would not have Mrs. Piozzi out of his sight. We entertained sixty-four English friends with a concert and supper at the Hôtel d'Angleterre, and dined and spent the evening with the first company every day, and we left them, much to my regret, after spending five weeks in gaiety and good humour. Why did we leave them? I never could tell certainly, but the best reason was the hope of seeing the mortgage to Miss Thrales fairly discharged and cancelled. That satisfaction I expect next Thursday. As for seeing our daughters, why, we never do see them here, any more than when the sea parted us, or hardly. The eldest has called twice, and we have called twice on Susan and Sophie, who refused dining here at our invitation, perhaps from the idea that they are superior to the petty sovereigns of Germany. End quote. For twenty-five years, Mrs. Piozzi lived in happiness and content with her second husband, who died at Brinbella, note the villa built by Piozzi on his wife's land near Denby, end note, in 1809. They never went abroad again, no doubt because the French Revolution and the constant warfare which resulted from it were interferences with travelling and especially with visits to Italy to which Englishmen had been so much inclined from the time of Henry the Eighth, visits for study and pleasure that seemed almost a necessary part of a polite education. 
suffice it to say that mr and mrs piozzi returned for a time to streatham and afterwards made their headquarters in wales on mrs thrale's ancestral estate and that mr piozzi delighted his wife's heart by being received into the church of england they became very friendly with the kembles and especially mrs siddons and i cannot do better than quote a somewhat surprising comparison of mrs siddons and mrs pritchard especially as mrs piozzi was well aware that mrs pritchard was stupid off the stage and knew nothing of the play of macbeth except her own part eleventh of january seventeen eighty nine kemble is an agreeable actor a very sensible and pleasing man i love him and his charming sister sincerely but have more sense than to take them for garrick and mrs pritchard tis a shame even to have them compared mrs pritchard was incomparable her merit overbore the want of figure her intelligence pervaded every sense she was the most refined coquette of quality in sibber's lady betty the most vulgar and cunning jade that ben jonson could invent in dull common the loftiest roman matron that shakespeare could conceive in coriolanus's mother the most subtle and artful millward that lillo could imagine capable of inducing the young and innocent prentice boy the tenderest the most instinctively tender parent that voltaire or his translator hill could give us in merope the softest and most subdued penitent that roe could exhibit in jane shaw dear siddons represents only a lover distressed or a woman of virtue afflicted with peculiar happiness elwina belvedere dianora mrs beverley her powers are strong and sweet vigorous and tasteful but limited and confined i always thought pritchard superior to garrick he felt her so in one scene in hamlet one of macbeth and one of the jealous wife when all the spontaneous applause of the house went to her seventeen eighty nine eighth of may mrs siddons acted juliet last night she does it naturally says someone so artificially rather said i but she is a great performer the parting scene with old nurse was the cleverest thing i ever saw so pretty so babyish so charming kemble slept over the parting scene in romeo he is like bottom the weaver he likes the tyrant's vein or ercles vein or a part to tear a cat in as bottom says i never can keep clear of the idea for my part a lover is too condoling for our friend kemble he is a clever man though and makes some capital hits in many capital characters i wonder if my executors will burn the thraliana mrs siddons is such a very great personage in the world of acting that i will quote some more passages by no means all in which mrs piozzi mentions her for we must remember that they became very intimate quote, 17th of may 1790 charming siddons has spent some weeks with me i think mighty well of her virtues and am amazed 
at the cultivated state in which I have found her mind. She is a fine creature, body and soul, and has a very distinguished superiority over other mortals. Poor, pretty Siddons. A warm heart and a cold husband are sad things to contend with, but she'll get through. 1st of March, 1791 I think Mrs. Siddons, though beautiful, and endowed with talents not to support only but enrich her family, is a woman by no means particularly beloved, either by parents, husband, brother or son. They all like to get what they can out of her, but all the affection flows from her to them, not from them to her. I guess not the reason, but five thousand women are better liked by their families. End quote. In 1794, while living at Streatham, her youngest daughter Cecilia attracted many admirers, among others Samuel Rogers, whose life might have been very different had he married Mrs. Piozzi's daughter. As it was, he became a famous host and literary figure, and at one time might be said to be the representative of literature in London, as Dr. Johnson was fifty years before him. Mrs. Piozzi's entry is, quote, Mr. Rogers has proposed to Cecilia. He seeks not her fortune, certainly, but he is too ugly to hope acceptance. Who but himself could fancy she would think of him, although banker and poet? She wants neither money nor verses, I suppose, and like the girl in the comedy would rather have a husband with white teeth. End quote. It is amusing to find Mrs. Piozzi noting with some annoyance that Rogers gave up visiting them at Streatham after her daughter's marriage, so that it was clear to her that he had only come for the sake of Cecilia, and not for the charms of the mother's conversation. There is a great deal about the affairs of Cecilia, both before and after her marriage in Thraliana, and of some of it I can quite understand Mr. Salisbury's remark that, quote, it is of too private and delicate character to be submitted to strangers, unquote. As for the three elder daughters who lived apart from her from the time of her marriage with Piozzi, there was no real intimacy, though the mutual feeling became less unfriendly as time went on. But Mrs. Piozzi had no tolerance or patience for anyone who did not appreciate and respect her dear husband. She was not merely a devoted wife, but found her chief happiness in being a devoted wife to the husband who had given her a second existence of exceptional harmony. Murphy, who had been the man to introduce Johnson to the Thrales, was the old friend for whom her liking remained unimpaired, and with whom she could enjoy a talk about the old times. One passage in Thradiana enables me to make a correction to previous writers. Johnson once made an improvised paraphrase of some Italian verses by Baretti. Long may live my lovely Hetty, always young and always pretty, always pretty, always young. Live my lovely Hetty long, always young and always pretty, long may live my lovely Hetty. And both Hayward and Seeley have described these verses as a compliment to Mrs. Thrale. Mrs. Piozzi writes, 
April the 3rd, 1794. Who would dream of poor Dr. Johnson's verses in praise of my eldest daughter when she was ten years old, done to divert Baretti by anglicising his song at the end of the baby dialogues, coming out now set to music for the missus to sing? Long may live my lovely Hetty, always young and always pretty, etc., etc. End quote. Footnote. Hayward says she made a note for Sir James Fellows in 1816. Quote, I heard these verses sung at Mrs. Thomas's by three voices not three weeks ago. End quote. End footnote. In justice to Hayward and Seely, we must say that in the anecdotes of Dr. Johnson, from which the verses are quoted, Mrs. Piozzi does not say in whose honour they were composed. Now that we know, we can easily see, as probably Haywood and Seely could have done, that internal evidence should have told us at once that they were not meant for Mrs. Thrale. Boswell was constantly carping at Mrs. Piozzi's accuracy and correcting her in trivial things. It is curious to find that in 1794 he had a great controversy with Miss Seward in reference to some early verses of Johnson's about a sprig of myrtle. Strange to say, Boswell in this controversy was maintaining the accuracy of Mrs. Piozzi's account of the origin of these verses. If we find this passage in Thraliana, quote, Mr. Boswell and Miss Seward are good antagonists for each other, made on purpose, one would think. I wonder which will have the last word about poor dear old Johnson's sprig of myrtle. Boswell's cause is best, certainly, but his opponent outrights him. Miss Seward has ten times his power. End quote. Boswell had committed the unpardonable sin of writing with want of respect about Piozzi and adopting Johnson's attitude of reprobation about the Piozzi marriage. Mrs. Piozzi, having lived so many years with an Italian artist and travelled in Italy in his company, knew Italian ways as few English women did, and yet kept her English point of view. The following passages concern matters about which people in the 18th century wrote more freely than we do, and both of them have a biographical value. The first relates to, quote, Henry the Ninth, unquote, the last of the Stuarts, and the second to a lady artist, the wife of a famous painter. Quote, I might have heard similar stories to the tales in Suetonius about the Roman emperors in Italy all day, had I not hated lewd conversations as I do. Old Cardinal de York kept a catamite publicly at Rome while I was there, though a man of the best character possible for piety and charity, with which, as a person said to me, that vice has nothing to do. They consider it a mere matter of taste. When Mrs. Cosway ran madding all over Europe after a castrato, leaving her husband and newborn baby at home here, she was praying at every altar and fasting vigorously all the time. A hypocritical hussy say the people. Not at all. Her faith is not influenced by her actions, I suppose. She was well persuaded of heavenly truths, although a prey to almost infernal passions or appetites strangely depraved. 
Her taking the veil at Genoa, after all, corroborates my opinion of her piety. Had I been abbess, though, and known her character, she should not have set foot in my convent. The nun's morality would be endangered by such a companion. Side note of Mrs. Piozzi's. She went en pension. She did not take the veil. End note. Mrs. Piozzi's books, Anecdotes of Johnson, 1786, and Letters to and from Johnson, 1788, were both very successful, for the public, or rather society, interest in Johnson lasted for many years after his death. Her account of her Italian journey, 1789, is lively and brightly written, and very much more readable today than most 18th century books of continental travel, these two volumes compare very favourably indeed with the four volumes of travels by her old enemy Baretti, which were so extravagantly overpraised by Johnson and for which Baretti received five hundred pounds from the booksellers. These books were written because Mrs. Piozzi had something to say. She had things to relate which nobody else could know. And she told her story in a headlong, lively manner that is a near approach to the familiarity of conversation, and has absolutely no relation to the stiff dignity of Johnson's prose style. I am glad to notice that Sir Walter Raleigh, in his chapter on, quote, Johnson without Boswell, unquote, says of Mrs. Piozzi, quote, It is impossible to read the anecdotes without falling under the spell of her easy, irresponsible charm, unquote. And the essential truth of her picture of Johnson is not vitiated by unimportant errors of detail, brought into an undue prominence by the genius of Boswell. But Mrs. Piozzi's later literary career is not so fortunate. Her British synonymy, produced in 1794, and sold by the mediation of Murphy and the repute of her former books for £500, was in no way a success, though it was not without some amusing passages. As for her last work, she relates in Threadiana that when she came to London in 1801 with the manuscript of two folio volumes, Retrospection or a Review of the Most Striking and Important Events, Characters, Situations and Their Consequences, which the last 1800 years have presented to the view of mankind, she found the publishers quite resolved not to pay for such a book. She was glad to come to terms with Mr. John Stockdale of Piccadilly on the terms that, quote, Stockdale bears me harmless of expense, and then we share the profits, which will be none. Unquote. She adds the further remark, quote, My bargain with Stockdale pleased nobody, I think. Unquote. My interest in Mrs. Piozzi has induced me to buy these two folio volumes, and I may say that in the later part of the second volume, her comments on the extraordinary events of her own time have some human and almost historical interest, though they are very awkwardly expressed. That is the best I can say of them. With regard to Thraliana, I should like to adopt the phrase of Professor Raleigh, and say that in the reading of it, I have 
fallen under the spell of Mrs. Piozzi's easy, irresponsible charm. The specimens I have given may or may not bring this home to those who have not had the privilege of dipping into Thraliana for themselves and reading in her own handwriting the sincere and private records of a remarkable woman. Sometimes it is so intimate that one feels as if, quote, profaning the mysteries of the bona dea, unquote, to use a convenient phrase employed by Lord Beaconsfield. The full flavour can only be obtained by a full perusal. It is a voracious document, the real thing, the genuine article. My endeavour has been to give fair samples, not to expurgate unduly, and to try to convey to others the historical, literary and human charm of Thraliana. Dates in the life of Mrs. Piozzi 1741, Hester Lynch, Salisbury born, January the 27th, daughter of John Salisbury of Bachy Crag. 1762, death of her father. 1763, her marriage to Henry Thrale, brewer of Southwark and Streatham. 1764, birth of her eldest daughter Hester, afterwards Lady Keith. She bore Thrale twelve children in all. 1765, First introduction to Johnson, Thrale, MP for Southwark, 1766, Johnson became domesticated at Streatham, and spent henceforth much of his time there, usually the middle of the weeks, returning to his London house on Saturday evenings. 1769, Boswell's first visit to Streatham, 1773, death of Mrs. Thrale's mother. 1774, tour in Wales of the Thrales and Dr. Johnson. On their return, they visit Burke at Beaconsfield. 1775, in September, Mr. and Mrs. Thrale, with their eldest daughter and Johnson and Beretti, visit France, eight weeks abroad. 1776, death of the Thrales' eldest son, a boy of ten. 1778, First visit of Fanny Burney, Madame D'Arblay, to Streatham. 1780, Gordon writes, Thrale loses his seat for Streatham. First acquaintance with Piozzi. 1781, death of Thrale, sale of the brewery. 1782, Streatham House led to Lord Shelburne. 1783, Piozzi sent to Italy, Mrs. Thrale retires to Bath. 1784. Marriage to Piozzi. Departure of Mr. and Mrs. Piozzi for Italy. Death of Johnson, December the 13th. 1787. Mr. and Mrs. Piozzi return to England. 1790. The Piozzis go to live at the old house at Streatham. 1795. They leave Streatham for North Wales to live on Mrs. Piozzi's ancestral estate. 1809, death of Piozzi. 1821, death of Mrs. Piozzi in May. She left his Welsh property to Piozzi's nephew, who took the name of Salisbury. End of section 4. End of Mrs. Piozzi's Thraliana by Charles Hughes.